Again, this is our first message in our new um, preaching series, Praying Our Way to Pentecost. And I, again, I have a confession to make. <laughs> if my wife wasn't paying attention, she's paying attention now. Um, I, I'm a perfectionist, or at least I have perfectionist tendencies. Um, and in case you're wondering, that doesn't mean I'm perfect. If you're not a perfectionist and you haven't dealt with this, it just means I struggle managing the ridiculous expectations I have for myself. And I would imagine that to a certain degree, many of you in some areas of your life, many, many areas of your life, you too struggle to match your expectations with your performance. And, and, and it might be in your relationships, you know, uh, family, spouses, parents, kids. You know, you, you want to be that perfect parent or you want to be that perfect kid or spouse, and you, your, your behavior just doesn't match your expectation, and, and you fall short, and, and it, it just kind of eats at you. Um, maybe it's your coworkers, maybe uh, friends at school, um, personal finances, <laughs> health, performance, career, all, all of that. Right, that gap between our, our expectation and, and what we can actually deliver. That, that, a lot of anxiety in that gap um, for, for, for somebody with perfectionist tendencies. So I wanna do a real quick, incredibly unprofessional evaluation of you all. Um, let's see how many of you are perfectionists. I'm just gonna throw up a few uh, characteristics of somebody who is a perfectionist, uh, maybe this all or nothing attitude, um, being highly critical, not so much of other people, but of yourself. Um, pushing, feeling pushed by fear. Fear kind of drives everything. Having unrealistic standards, right? Got these, hit that next slide there. Uh, focusing only on results. Feeling depressed by unmet goals. Fear of failure, that, that's a big one. We're kind of hit on that today. And then we've talked about procrastination. Um, again, in any area of life, these tendencies can obviously affect your life, um, your ability to find happiness and success in the world. Um, but this morning, I want to focus on that one area that has such a hum huge impact on all the other areas of our life, and that's our faith, right? If there's ever a place where performance consistently fails to match expectations, right, faith is that place for most people. Um, so today, I kind of want to talk about failing faith, and that's a misnomer. I'll just tell you right now, your, your faith probably isn't failing. Um, so this is, this is going to be a good news um, message. Um, this morning, your Heavenly Father wants to give you some breathing room, a little bit of wiggle room, right, between the expectation and your delivery. Uh, he, he just wants you to have peace in that place where you don't normally find peace. Um, and he's going to do it this morning um, by way of a very well-known and possibly misunderstood example of faith failed. Failed faith. I'm going to do that all morning. Failed faith in Scripture, the denial of Peter. Right, you all know, if you don't, we're going to dig into it just a little bit. Um, Peter's denial. Um, in Luke chapter 22, we're first going to see Jesus doing just a crazy superhuman job of managing his own, because he's got unmet expectations, right? He had expectations for his disciples, and as you read, you strongly get the impression that they did not meet his expectations. They, uh, they, they, just, they, they, were, they were just not so good. So we're first going to see Jesus do just a superhuman job of managing and handling his own unmet expectation. And then we're going to watch Peter not <laughs> do a good job. And maybe we'll see a little bit of ourselves in the way Peter handles this. We're going to dig it into a little deeper maybe than you've dug before. Um, so we're going to watch Peter do a horrible job of managing and handling his unmet expectation. And then finally we're going to get to see here Jesus help Peter and us manage our own expectations and delivery behavior. That, that gap 
um, in between there. So I'm going to start at verse 20, Luke chapter 22. It says this, um, In the same way after the supper he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine at the table. So, I mean, it's just hours before everything's going to hit the fan, right? Jesus knows this. Basically, his time is up, right? His, his incarnate time is up, and he knows that. For three years, he's been teaching and reminding and teaching and reminding and examples constantly, and, and he knows. He, he doesn't have any more time to explain um, these things to him. Um, <clears throat> Time to explain yet one more time the nature of the kingdom that he's ushered in. Um, and the very first thing, and, and it's pretty much completely out of Jesus' control, the very first thing that when he's about to, like, hand off kind of the keys to the kingdom, right? Right at the very last minute, right? You ever do that? You, you have a trip, you have something big planned. At the last minute, everything just goes... Well, this is kind of what's happening to Jesus. He's about to leave and then just... I mean, just, just everything just goes south so, so quickly. Um, total faith failure on the part of Moses, uh, uh, Judas. That, that's the first thing. The very first thing, right out of the gate, is Judas fails him. The Son of Man will go, and has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. And they begin to question themselves which of them it might be and who would do this. So, again, to be clear on Jesus managing his own unmet expectations, right? One of his inner circle betrays him. Right? That, that's a... That's a drop in confidence right there. And then the response, is there care and concern for Jesus? No. Right? They didn't, like, they didn't even, Jesus was the one that was injured and hurt in this whole episode, and they're like, whoa. All they could think about is themselves. All they could think about was themselves. You know, care? Nope, nope. And then on top of these two last-minute developments, this is in Luke, uh, in, in verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was be, to be considered the greatest. Now, and again, at this point, it wouldn't have surprised anyone if Jesus would have just looked up to heaven, shrugged his shoulders, and <laughs> we tried. I failed. They don't get it. They, and time's up, and they still, they don't get it. I mean, you, nobody would have blamed him, right? Shrugging his shoulders. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus had been a perfectionist, unable to manage his own unmet expectations, if he had had an all-or-nothing thinking, right? If he, if he was highly critical, if he was pushed by fear, if he had unrealistic standards, I mean, any of these things, focusing only on results, all of these things. Can you imagine if Jesus had been a procrastinator, excuse me, a perfectionist? We would be in a world of hurt. But Jesus was playing the long game, right? Jesus understood something about failure and faith and the way God works in our lives that we, I think, need to understand, that we kind of get a, need to get our heads around. So he takes a deep breath, and he gently reminds them one last time, right? One last time. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Right? He's just being gentle. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I, I am among you as one who serves? And then he ever so gently, like watch this, he ever so gently turns this mild scolding into words of hope and encouragement. Um, just incredibly tender. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. So like they just, you know, bam, bam, bam. 
<laughs> they didn't get anything. And he tells them one last time, don't be like that. But you've stood by me, and I appreciate it. You haven't failed me. You've messed up a lot. You faltered all over the place, but you haven't failed. Only one of you did. One of you failed me, but none of the rest of you. You might have faltered again, but you didn't fail me. But you've stood by me in my times of need, and therefore I confer on you a kingdom. Again, right? You're clearly not ready, but I believe in you all. You're kind of messed up, but I, I believe in you. It's going to take time. You know, it's not an all or nothing thing. I'll tell you that right now. It's, it's going to take some time. Contrary to appearances, you are not failures. We are not done yet. Verse 31, 29, 30. Um, I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So now, just put yourself in Peter's feet, sandals, whatever you want. Not long ago, Jesus had called him the rock, right? Peter had gotten one of the rabbi's questions correct, and that didn't happen all that often, right? They were normally wrong, and Jesus had to correct them. And so he's, his, his head's already growing, right? And now Jesus seems to be saying that he would get to be a ruler in his new kingdom. Now, now we know, we know, um, based on their current conversation, that Jesus was referring to the fact that they would simply have increased responsibilities and duties in the new kingdom. It's not like they were going to be judges and, 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 and like the Gentiles lord it over others, right? Judges and kings were supposed to embody the laws, not just enforce them. So the disciples were figuring this out, like, we've got to be holy. We, we just want to make sure everyone else is. Jesus is like, nope, you have to embody me, you, right? So then Jesus turns to speak to the disciples, but he sets his gaze on Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Now, you notice that. He's speaking to Simon Peter, and he's even using his old name, like his old nature or something, right? He's not calling him Peter. He's calling him Simon. He's asked to sift all of you, and he's got his eyes on Peter, Simon, same thing. He reminds Peter of Satan's role to play in God's economy, and we're reminded of this in the first chapter of Job, right? Satan is somehow allowed by God and within limits to challenge and, and, and test the faith of believers. That, it, it, it's a role he plays, and again, by God's permission. And then I want you to notice this. Jesus is talking about all the disciples. They'll all be sifted by Satan, right? All of you, all of us, all believers, we're all being sifted by Satan all the time. I don't know if you're aware of that. If you're wondering how come you're having problems, there it is. But then Jesus offers a special prayer for only for Peter. But I have prayed for you, Simon, Peter, that your faith may not fail. Now, my guess is that Jesus didn't actually just only pray for Peter. In fact, the, the apostle John records this as a fact in chapter 17 of his gospel. It says this in 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Now, I think Jesus prayed openly in front of Peter and the others for Peter specifically because Peter was one of the leaders, Right? So goes the leader, there goes the organization, right? We, we all know this idea, this, this idea there. Um, but the bigger question this morning, which failed? Right? Was it Jesus' prayer because Peter's faith did fail? Or was it Peter's faith 
because Peter's faith did fail. Now, at first glance, it appears that both failed because Peter's faith did fail, right? He did deny knowing Jesus three times. So what does that say about our situation, right? How can I be saved or sanctified, let alone entirely sanctified when I keep failing? Does prayer really work, or do I not get answers because I am such a faith failure? Right? And we, we struggle with this. And, uh, do I got to do more? Do I got to be better? Do I got to be... In a nutshell, how can my faith withstand the onslaught of Satan? And the key, I think, lies in Luke's word for failure. It's not actually the way we use the term. Right? For Luke, failure means to stop functioning entirely, to come to an end, to die out. Right? That's his term for failure. But the way we use failure, we don't use it that way. We use it to kind of describe all of our mistakes, all of our mess-ups, screw-ups. That's, that's what we think of as failure. Not that we have ceased to exist, but that we're just mess-ups. Very two separate definitions for the word failure going on here. We fail when there's a gap between our understanding and our obedience. We don't try to excuse our way out of the situation. We call it what it is. It's a failure. Whenever we choose comfort over calling or preference over faith, we have failed. By our definition, failing is so frequent in our spiritual lives that it feels like we're always failing at faith. I just want to suggest this morning that perhaps Jesus' view of failure doesn't match our own. Right? Speaking through Luke, he's got a completely different idea for that word failure than we have. And if not, if our view of failure doesn't match Jesus's, then maybe we're calling something a failure that Jesus wouldn't call a failure, that Jesus wouldn't even pray to keep you from, right? Maybe what you view as failure is something that God wants to bring you into. I believe that Jesus's prayer for us didn't fail, and neither did his prayer for Peter, because Peter's faith, I want you to catch this, it didn't fail. And the way Luke's using that word, completely die out, dead, gone. Luke's faith faltered. It didn't fail. That's a huge difference, huge difference. And particularly in the way God works in our lives, we, we have to pay attention to that difference there. Peter's faith didn't fail. It just faltered. His faith was still functioning. It did not come to an end. He denies knowing Jesus, but ultimately his faith did not fail. And a faith that falters is not the same as a faith that fails. Peter's faith faltered within the crisis, but it did not fail. And I would imagine the same thing is true with you. You look back over your faith life, and you have had many failures, but they weren't. You're sitting here in front of me. <laughs> that tells me that your faith is not dead. It's not gone. Sometimes it falters, if you're honest with yourselves. But it's not dead. It's not dead. And because Peter's faith doesn't fail, it emerges stronger on the other side. This is the same Peter that became the leader of the church, the same Peter that preached to 3,000 new believers on Pentecost. His faith faltered. Even after this moment, he's, he's going to struggle, right? He's, he's still going to have struggles, but it never failed. So why do we view falter as failure? Why are we quicker to label something a failure than Jesus? And why are we quicker to label something finished than Jesus? There's this concept within weightlifting that you train to failure, right? You, you do enough reps to the point where you cannot, literally cannot do 
One more rep, your muscles fail. You train to failure. Now, if you know anything about weightlifting, that's not the last rep you'll ever do, right? You'll come back tomorrow, you'll come back in 20 minutes and you'll, you'll you're, you're, it did not fail, right? At that point, it might be a better term, train to falter. But the idea in the weightlifting is, and, and, I, and I, I wanna suggest this morning that maybe we ought to look, take a look at our faith and kind of treat it like weightlifters. Are we pressing our faith to the point where it doesn't fail, but it falters because we are pressing in so hard? And Jesus' understanding of the word failure doesn't mean the muscle's finished for good, right? You've got another set. You've got more work to do. And by Jesus' terminology, you could say that you train to falter and it's necessary for our growth, right? We know this. Without the strain and the overstimulation, the muscle simply doesn't grow, and we're the same way. Again, maybe we need to start looking at life and faith the same way. Let's consider our falters as steps of growth instead of failures and stop beating ourselves up. Give ourselves some grace. Give ourselves some wiggle room. God wants to do the same thing. Why fight him? He's literally, literally giving you a lifeline, right? And that gap between our expectations and our performance, right? Grace lives there. Grace for other people and grace for ourselves because that's where God lives in that gap. Our crises and our moments of need are the very tools that God uses to refine our faith and it causes it to be stronger on the other side. I think we struggle because we expect our faith to be perfect, especially as Nazarenes and entire sanctification and we just get this, we build up this idea that we have to behave perfectly and not just have a, a, a purified heart, but we gotta also have purified behavior. And if we somehow stumble, we lost something, right? We admit that we won't be perfect, and yet it seems like we're often surprised by the realization that we're not perfect, right? We know we can't be perfect, we wanna be perfect, and we're surprised when we're not perfect. I mean, it, it's crazy, but that's just the way it works. And I think many of us would have responded just like Peter, exactly like Peter, completely mismanaging the expectations that we have for ourselves. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison or to death. I don't know about you, I probably would have overestimated my faithfulness. Yep, sign me up, Jesus. And then when 6.30 rolled around, oh, I'm gonna roll back over and go to sleep. I don't know about the rest of you. I would have overestimated, overestimated my faithfulness and then assumed that my faith had failed, right? And again, maybe we call it a failure because it takes us by surprise. We overestimate our faithfulness and we can't clearly see the work that God is doing in us, right? And the work that he is still calling us to do. So after Jesus tells Peter his prayer, he once again displays absolute control, and I want you to watch this, over his own unmet expectations that he had for the disciples. And at the same time, he points the way forward for us, right? So Jesus has so much faith in an apparent failure um, that he gives them a task to do after he falters, right? It says this, and when you have turned back, I so say, you see right away, um, I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, so Jesus is basically saying, I'm praying for you, but you're gonna fail. Have you ever had a coach tell you that, right? Work all week and say, you know what, this Saturday we're gonna go out and get annihilated. It's like, oh, coach, good coaching. But Jesus is just being honest here. He's just, just being honest. Your faith will fail. Stop setting yourself up for the horrible letdown. It, it, it will happen. And if you are truly entirely sanctified, you will not turn and run from God, but you will quickly turn back to him and figure out a way to make the problem right. That's what an entirely sanctified person does. It's not that they're perfect behaviors, that they have a 
a heart that's been perfected. And when they see something that they've done, they cannot stand to let it sit. So it's not that we are perfect in behavior if you're entirely sanctified, it's that our heart has been cleansed. The very people we label as done with faith or assume that their faith has failed, I think are the very people that Jesus would instruct us to strengthen after we've turned back. Right? You may have overestimated your faithfulness at times, but do not overestimate, underestimate the call that God has on your life. I think Jesus provides several answers to our questions this morning. How can our faith withstand Satan? The primary answer is Jesus intercedes on our behalf, right? We know this. He sits at the right hand of the Father. The second answer is that those who falter but don't fail, right, will return to strengthen the others. And then the final answer, let's consider our falters as steps of growth and not failures. I believe in Jesus' prayers. I believe Jesus' prayer worked for Peter. I believe it worked for the church in John chapter 17. And I believe his prayer for us has not failed. Right? The prayers of Jesus have kept the church together through an incredible season. Has it been easy? No. Has it been pretty? No. Has the church given itself over to lesser issues in the kingdom? Yeah. But we haven't failed. We're still here. The church is still here. We are still the witnesses of something amazing that happened 2,000 years ago and continues to happen daily in the lives of people by the Holy Spirit. You haven't failed. You might have faltered. And maybe, maybe you faltered a whole, whole bunch of times, but you're still here. And Jesus hasn't forsaken you. And this faith that he has started, he will complete. So don't quit. Just bow your heads. Father, thank you so much for Peter and his honesty and his impetuous. And we, we all have a little bit of Peter in us. Um, but Father, we need a whole bunch of you in us. Uh, with Peter in us, we, we're just judgmental. We're, we're all over the map. But Father, give us courage to constantly step out don't operate out of fear. But understand that we are more than conquerors. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. So, Father, all this stuff, the church is not done because you're not done. In your name we pray. Amen.